everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Rhonda, what is this? Episode 91. And it's time for me... No, no, sorry. Episode 92. I can count, I promise. I think. I don't know. It's nine. I'm going to go with 92. Anyway, it's been a while since I've delved into my inbox. I've had several interviews. I had kind of that North Pole seasonal thing going on. And I, meanwhile, I've had an inbox filling up with messages. So if you sent me a message and wondering if this jerk's ever going to get back to me, well, now I'm going to try. I'm going to at least get started in whittling down what's in my inbox. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about drying lumber in a couple different forms. We're going to highlight um, a couple of species, specifically wingay. I'm going to talk about rift and quartered material and uh, wrap things up by just a more general discussion about drying lumber. Um, well, in general. <laughs> so uh, as always, if you have questions, please send them into the show. You can email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com or you can go to lumberupdate.com and there's a contact form you can fill out there that populates a fancy little spreadsheet that I look at from time to time. Um, as always, I do appreciate the support of this show. You can sponsor the show, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash lumber update. Thank you to everyone, as always, for the help and uh, keeping this show going. Let's let's dive into some news, right? It's uh, I, I can't remember if I've spoken about this before. I, I've had this story kind of in my inbox for a while. I swear I've talked about it on the show before, but I can't find it anywhere. So if I have, you're hearing it again. Um, I get questions a lot about what happens to material that is seized. You know, if if it is deemed illegal or was shipped illegal or something like that, it's generally seized at the port. And, you know, there, there needs to be some reassurance. I hear from people who say, well, how do I know that the lumber that I'm buying, you know, from this guy here in the U.S., uh, it was legal. Generally, if it's already in the country, it's already gone through the inspections and deemed legal, was harvested legally, was harvested sustainably, all that fun stuff. Um, obviously, that's not always the case. Here in North America, that's a pretty strong case. Within the European Union, there's a pretty strong bet that you can count that it's already passed inspection because the ports, customs and border control and everything at the ports are examining these things, and they tend to be pretty, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, opportunistic when it comes to seizing material. A lot of material will get held up and will eventually get released because it is deemed to be legal. But let's just say they grab more than they actually need to sometimes. And I think it's not necessarily a criticism. They got to do what they, they got to do. And it's just when you're on the receiving end of what you know is legal lumber and it gets held up for months at a port and you're paying demerge fees for it, that's kind of tough to swallow. But, you know, we're going to try to be... Uh, uh, nice about the whole thing and say that, you know, at least they're they're capturing things. Well, long story short, once that material has been seized and determined this was illegal, this has violated some regulation, there's a whole process of courts and all that fun stuff. And generally, when it comes out the end, there's this material that's been seized. The one regulation is that material cannot then be resold. It is generally donated to a nonprofit. So this story was passed to me of a school in Georgia that received some of that IPE that was seized uh, coming in from Brazil. Uh, Fish and Wildlife seized over two tons uh, of IPE, and this stuff was sent on to a school where they're making raised garden beds from it. So it's not like, you know, the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark where the material gets crated up and sh stuck in a warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant somewhere. 
Although sometimes I wonder, <laughs> I feel like there's some mahogany shipments sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Um, but for the most part, once it goes through the long, arduous legal process, years down the line, generally, it does get donated to some kind of nonprofit. And hopefully, when those people receive it, they know what they're getting. They know they're getting genuine mahogany, or in this case, ePay, and, and how to, to, to use it. ePay is a great exterior wood, so what a great opportunity for these kids to get into gardening and raise garden beds with a bunch of really high-quality donated lumber. So there we go. It doesn't always happen that way, but for the most part, that's the intention when this stuff is seized. I uh, got a great story from Kevin. Uh, he actually sent me an email from, uh, I think it was the Bangor Times or something, but it was one of those, like, I looked at it for 10 seconds and then a popover came up and denied me access unless I've subscribed. So I found this uh, somewhere else, um, but there is a, um, a plywood mill that is trying to be built in Maine. And I've spoken about this in the past about the difficulty of finding shop grade plywood since the Ukrainian war and how it would be great if a North American person, company, individual would step up and start making high quality plywood domestically. Well, that's the plan anyway. And there's a guy up in Maine who is in the flooring industry. His name's Charlie Martin. And he has purchased an old millwork house uh, in uh, the Somerset County region around Bangor and has also bought a Canadian plywood mill on all their machinery and brought all that machinery down to Maine. And he's hoping to set up Maine Plywood USA LLC. Um, last I heard, there's still some funding that needs to be secured to make all this happen, but he has all the material, all of the machinery, everything he needs to get this plywood mill launched and start producing plywood locally that he can use initially to supply to local main demands. But certainly if it goes well, you never know what it could do for New England. But it's, it's just a drop in the bucket, frankly, of what's needed for plywood, but to have an actual mill, um, in Maine could be a major, major boon and could be a great start, you know, a great start to having better quality domestic plywood. So uh, more power to you, Charlie Martin. Keep it going. Um, I hope to actually visit him next time I'm up in Maine, but a great story. And Kevin, thanks for sharing that with me. Um, a little bit of feedback on some previous episodes. Uh, I did that opportunistic lumber episode where I talked about, you know, keeping some tools around, what tools you might want to keep around in the car for harvesting those roadside logs. And Ben wrote in and said uh, he just wanted to show off the, the use of an electric chainsaw based on that opportunistic logging episode. He says, I have a fair access to uh, a, a good, amount, good amount of logs. And one day I thought, what the heck? I could just saw them up with the electric chainsaw. I've been making boards very slowly for a few years with a battery saw. I just use the chalk line as a guide and freehand it, basically a hold my beer situation. Absolutely love this because it works. I mean, frankly, with that chalk line, you can follow it pretty closely. Are you going to get the absolute perfect line? Um, you know, that that like a band sawmill uh, or a circular sawmill reproduced for you? No, but it's still producing rough sawn lumber. And if you have the capabilities to plane it and mill it later, there's nothing to say that just you know, free handing along a chalk line with a chainsaw, um, 
won't produce some good quality lumber. I don't recommend trying to saw like four quarter thickness here because you might have to end up removing a little bit more material to get it flat. It makes sense to saw, you know, 10 quarter, possibly 12 quarter thickness, maybe eight quarter thickness um, because you may have to remove a little bit more there. So while there may be a little bit more waste in the long run, this is something, you know, with a, a chainsaw or in this case, a battery powered chainsaw, you can go a really long way. And actually the featured image for this episode is an image that Ben sent me that shows his battery powered chainsaw stuck, you know, buried into a log, uh, making some lumber. So milling your own boards does not have to be, you know, beyond the realm of possibility. If you're like me, where I would love to, you know, I've got Macromona's plans, I could make a bandsaw mill, but there's no way my neighborhood covenants would allow for that. Nor do I really have the space in my yard to do that. But chainsaws running every weekend around here in the summer. There's nothing to say I can't pull out a chainsaw and, and mill up some lubber, either with an Alaskan mill or just freehanding it along a chalk line like uh, Ben has just told us is possible. Bart wrote in with uh, a question about the reclaimed lumber episode. He said, I'm enjoying your current quote season of reclaimed and urban lumber. One question came to mind after listening is how do these uh, reclaimed boards affect tool degradation? Uh, I would think previously I've applied finishes, metal and rot would have some effect. I'm just not sure how much and is it worth considering? So certainly um, the metal is a big deal that, you know, that can eat up saw blades, uh, depending on how old it is. The older the metal, generally the softer it tends to be and it doesn't really affect the saw blades as much, depending on the type of saw blade you're using. If it's a more expensive saw blade with carbide brazed uh, teeth, it's probably not going to affect the softer metal that much. Start getting into stainless steel screws, uh, stainless steel nails, and things like that. That can be a little bit more of an issue. Um, but that's metal detectors, and and you know closely examining the board before you do this, or using a bandsaw that's using cheaper blades. That you know if one if one gets dulled, it's not the end of the world because you can buy another blade for like eighteen bucks. Um, finishes and rot. Not really affecting the blades as far as like degrading, you know, the, the sharpness. And what I always say is no matter what you do, you're degrading the sharpness. Just running the saw, you're degrading the sharpness. That's why we learn how to sharpen. So, you know, running a blade over a finished surface, I guess it depends on the type of finish and how old it is and how hard it's become. Maybe, maybe that might prematurely dull a blade, but it's not going to damage the blade and it's not going to affect your ability to resharpen it. So um, certainly there may be exceptions to the rule dependent upon really, really, really thick, really hard, really old finishes. But you also have to ask the question, like how much of that material will you be running? One of the things we talked about the Reclaim Lumber episode is this is a finite resource. It's not like, you know, you're, you come across some tank wood and you've got, you know, truckload after truckload after truckload of this stuff, you're going to have the amount that made up that one tank. And when you run that, you're done. So the the real wear and tear on a lot of, is certainly industrial commercial machinery, is the constant running for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. So I don't know that finishing is really going to cause any problems. Rot, certainly, well, that stuff is just softer. Um, that's not really going to cause any issues. There may be excess moisture in it, but anybody who's managing, you know, a, a machine or anyway knows about rust inhibition and taking care of your tools and things like that. That's really no different than anywhere. 
If you are dealing with a lot of reclaimed lumber that is sopping wet, it's one of the things that we talked about that reclaimed lumber episode and how dealing in reclaimed lumber can kind of be like the Wild West, where one person's notion of dry and another person's notion of dry are very different. If you're dealing with wet lumber, be very aware of that. Don't you know walk out of the shop at the end of the day without wiping down your tools with an oily rag, without making sure there's not water resting on your planer bed or, you know, um, the... I, I ran into this problem where I built a bench one time using a six by six out of Western red cedar, knowing full well that the center of that beam was probably 20, 25% moisture. Well, I drilled a hole. This was a workbench. I drilled a hole for a hold fast, stuck a hold fast in there and was using it. And, uh, left at the end of the day. I came back the next day and my holdfast was rusted into place. Not only had the wood shrunk as it dried, but it transferred all that moisture into the, you know, ferrous material of my holdfast and had a lovely patina of rust all over it. It wasn't so terrible that I couldn't clean it up, but it's something to pay attention to. You're working with wet wood. It's going to leave moisture on all your tools that can rust. So you got to take care of those things. Just something to be aware of. As far as the rotten material itself, it's soft enough that it's not really going to hurt any of your tools. I think it's more of the issue of rust that you have to pay attention to. For the most case, for the average hobbyist or for the even even a lot of, you know, industrial uh, or commercial places, uh, like uh, when we talked about in the Reclaim Lumber episode, the variety of material you're seeing is such that you're never running that much of, of one type of material that it's going to cause serious degradation to any of your tools. What it comes down to is just increased tool maintenance. Stay on top of the maintenance and you're not going to have any problems in the long run. So that being said, let's let's move on to some emails here. Dan sent me this question about drying cookies. He says, when trying to dry limbs for making cookies, I know it's best to fell a tree when it is dormant. Um, by dormant, in case you're not sure what he's talking about there, it, it's best to fell a tree in any time when the sap isn't rising. So in the the fall, late fall, and definitely in the winter. Generally, the dead of winter is the best idea. Um, one can call that tree dormant because the sap is not rising, is not actively you know, um, sucking up material. It's not in an active growing phase, but I can't really call it dormant. It is still growing. It is still extracting nutrients and water from the ground. You know, the, 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 the sap is, is I guess it's still rising. It's just at a much slower rate, much lower concentrations. The tree's just kind of in a hibernation mode. It's just holding its ground and it's not actively growing at that point. Look at early and late growth rings in any hardwood and you'll see what I mean. That late growth is uh, much denser, usually a lot darker because that's the material is really closely packed together. You look at your uh, early growth where the tree is growing a lot faster. It's flush with nutrients. It's less dense. It's usually lighter in color. So it's definitely not dormant. Um, he says, what is the moisture difference between a dormant tree versus a growing tree? Here again, we've hit that distinction. Dormant and growing is probably not the right word there. And number two, you talk about getting rid of free moisture by putting the piece on end to let gravity pull that moisture out. How long do the pieces need to be on end to get that free moisture out? So what is the moisture difference between a dormant tree and a growing tree? Well, the clarification of those two terms kind of answers that question. The moisture content is not that much different. You may might find that it's a little bit lower, but the tree still needs water to survive. Because it's growing a little bit slower, it doesn't quite need all the nutrients and doesn't need the sugars and stuff like that, but it still has moisture in the tree. You can expect a, a standing tree 
to have, it's going to vary from species to species and certainly climate to climate, but it's going to have in excess of 85% moisture content. Very, very, very high. And I think if you sample the tree in the dead of winter and sample the tree in the height of summer, you will find that that moisture content is not that much difference. The reason we fell a tree in the winter is not because of water, but because of sugars. Um, when the sap is rising, the sap is full of nutrients, full of sugars, i.e. things that bugs love to eat, things that cause staining, things that fungi love to eat. So uh, I had another question about the best time to fell a holly tree. I think I've mentioned in the past, but felling a holly tree must, must, must be done in the dead of winter and you must dry it immediately. You fell it, you saw it on a board, you stick it in the kiln if possible in the same day because it is the sugars that the particular fungus that is so, so loves holly that loves to stain that bright white wood into kind of a gray color, that fungus will latch onto those sugars immediately and start staining it. Holly is just a very stain prone wood. So you fell it in the dead of winter when there is the least amount of sugar in the wood, you saw it into boards and you dry it. Drying also pulls the moisture out. The moisture is going to have sugars dissolved in it the sugars are also going to harden in kiln dry temperatures. So that's the next thing. You dry holly and you dry it down below, you know, 6%. You try to get it as low as possible and then you re-moisturize it, reverse the case hardening process, the last step of any kiln dry process with, um, you know, really, uh, really pure water uh, that's not going to have sugars and things that can increase the staining. By dropping it down close to 0%, you're hardening those sugars and making them essentially non-reactive. You're turning that sugary top of the creme brulee under the flame torch into a hard, crunchy outer shell. Um, and that's going to prevent that staining even more. So therein lies the difference is the sugar, the stuff that the bugs are going to want to eat. If you fell a tree in summer, it's going to rot. Rot is caused by bugs eating wood. It's caused by fungus eating the wood um, and, and various other beasties. Um, if there's no sugar, if the tree is unappetizing, or more importantly, not that it's unappetizing, it's that it's less appetizing than a tree that's maybe next to it that has a higher sugar content, the tree won't rot or it won't rot as fast. So that's why we're felling them in the winter it has nothing to do with the, the moisture uh, in other words, when it comes to drying the lumber, there's still going to be a significant amount of moisture in that tree, which goes to the second point. Gravity drying or draining the board is the best way to put it. Standing that board up on end will just let gravity at 9.8 meters per second per second pull the water right out. And as far as how long it takes, it will depend upon, you know, the, the size of the board, the length of the board. But, you know, your average eight foot board, you're talking like overnight. And what I usually tell people is stand it up, come back the next day, and you'll find a pool of water underneath it. Mop up that pool of water, leave it alone, and come back the next day. You might find another puddle of water under the board. Maybe it'll be less. Mop that up, come back a third day, and you probably won't see a puddle of water under there. But you just keep repeating that process until there's no puddle of water lying under the board that you stood up. Once that's done, you know that the the free, the, the unbound water has just drained out the bottom. The other thing is when you've got that puddle of water there, 
It's kind of like when you, you take a straw and you stick it into your Coke and you put your finger over the top and you pull the straw out. There's still that water clinging in the straw because of the vacuum that you've created. The, the pressure is not allowed to equalize and let the, the soda run at the bottom of the straw. Well, the puddle of water under your board is essentially stopped it up and preventing any more water from flowing out. It's kind of closed that off just in reverse. It's on the bottom instead of on the top. So by cleaning up that puddle of water, you're allowing more moisture to, to, to come out. Certainly the moisture will continue to drain. It's just going to drain a lot faster if you take the time to mop up that puddle of water and put it you know, down on the ground, not sitting in standing water. Because the other thing will happen when a board is sitting in standing water is it will actually absorb that wood through capillary action. Wood is hydrophilic. It loves water. So it's going to soak that water up. So you, you might actually see the opposite where if you just leave it in that puddle of water, eventually that puddle of water may go away, but it probably didn't evaporate. It was reabsorbed back into that board. So it's important to keep mopping that up and coming back and checking um, every time you've done it. And it's highly possible that most of the water, if not all the free water drained on the first day, but by mopping it up, you're allowing some of the stuff that reabsorbed to then drain out. Then you mop it up and anything that reabsorbed from the second draining drains out a third time. You're just kind of slowly eliminating that amount of water that's kind of in circulation in the board. The bound stuff in the cell walls itself, well, that's why we've got to do, uh, that's why we've got to do kiln drying or uh, longer periods of air drying and things like that. So I hope that helps, Dan. Uh, got a question from George on Wingay. This one kind of makes me laugh, but I wanted to bring it up. He says, I'd like to get some clarification on Wingay. Uh, I love the color and I've seen it used in some beautiful pieces, but I've gotten some wildly different takes on its nature. Specifically, I've seen beautiful cutting boards that use it, but I've been told if a health inspector sees one in a restaurant, they will identify it as a food safety hazard, presumably because of dangerous extractives. We'll put a pen in that. I've also heard that a splinter from Wingay would always cause, always results in an infection, and you have to be very careful with it, even beyond regular eye and lung protection, since it's so hazardous to humans. In this, uh, if in this case, why would we even use it? The color is nice, but not impossible to replace. It either seems more trouble than it's worth, or the dangers are overblown. Any insight on this? So. I personally don't like Wingay um, because of the splinters. Um, it, 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 you get splinters from across the room with Wingay. I'm actually also not really a fan of the color. Um, people love that kind of chocolate brown look, but the fact is once you put finish on it, it pretty much darkens to almost black ebony type color. So you might think, well, I really like ebony, so I'll use Wingay. But because Wingay is such an open poured, it will never end up looking like ebony. It will never have that luster that ebony has because of the extreme dense nature and tiny, 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 almost microscopic pores that are in ebony and in most rosewoods for that matter. Winge is a particularly interesting species in the fact that it has a lot of the properties that you might expect from a diffuse porous, very uh, uh, high, high density wood, but it's a diffuse porous, uh, dense yet lower specific gravity wood. It's very odd. Um, because it's got wide open pores, that kind of ameliorates the density of the stuff that's in between the pores. So it kind of averages it out to a less than dense wood, even though it is quite hard and quite dense. Like as far as dulling tools, as far as like chopping a mortise, as far as the wear and tear on your tools, it is quite dense. It is quite harsh. But the weight of it is kind of like, eh, this shouldn't be. This shouldn't be so hard on my tools because of those big wide open pores, because the amount of dead air that's in Wingay 
in the spots that isn't the stuff in between the pores was a really uh, (laughs) kind of a convoluted way of describing that. So Wingate kind of defies most of the standards that we put at it. I think ultimately the real piece in it, the real reason it becomes so widespread is that truly exotic look to it. While he says the color is nice but not impossible to replace, is it? Is it really? I mean, the chocolate brown color might be similar to walnut, but walnut keeps that color when finish is applied. Wingate tends to soak it up and turn black, like I said before. Um, there are some rosewoods that get kind of close, but rosewoods are definitely not an easy replacement, especially considered most rosewoods are Cites Appendix 1 species these days, and many of them are rightfully listed as endangered. Um, Peruvian walnut gets kind of close, but not quite the same. Uh, ebony, certainly. <laughs> Any of the Dalbergia genus, definitely not an easy replacement. So what it comes down to is people are going for that rosewood ebony type look and using winge as the substitute. Um, in fact, when people tend to buy winge for that chocolate brown color, they get very disappointed, as I've said before, once they apply finish. Um, winge also has... Uh, because of the size of the tree, like most African hardwoods, it's a very large, bold tree. So it's easy to get um, wide quarter sawn boards and very long quarter sawn boards. So Winge these days has started to gain, gain a resurgence in the commercial millwork space for large feature walls and things like that. Um, furniture, you will certainly see it as accent pieces. More often than not, you tend to see it in quarter sawn accent pieces. Um, the flats on stuff certainly shows up as well, but anybody who's worked with it knows that it is quite troublesome. It's very splintery. It's very open poured. If you want a sheen to the finish, you've got to fill those pores. Well, pore filling can be difficult in and of itself unless you can dye the pore filler because the wood is so dark, a traditional pore filler will show up white and chalky and it will completely change the look. So you've got to use you know, a, a filler that can be dyed or an epoxy that can be dyed for filling that. It becomes very difficult. So I, I throw it back to you, George, and say, why would we use it? I have used it several times. I've turned it. I've built furniture with it. I've built boxes with it. And I've gotten splinters every single time. And yes, those splinters hurt. You must remove those splinters as soon as possible. But I also can't really say the same You can't be said for a lot of exotic woods. Frankly, a lot of domestic woods. Everybody's going to have different sensitivities to different wood species. But I know, for example, Western Red Cedar drives me crazy if I get a splinter. Um, I know a lot of people who have the same reaction to Douglas fir, but Douglas fir doesn't bother me in the slightest. I know people who have a strong reaction to cherry splinters. I don't know a lot of people who do not have a reaction to exotics. Um, Coco below. Oh, that's a bad one. Just the dust will cause reactions. Winge, the dust can cause reactions as well. So I, you know, I, I would say the same thing. People that do use Wingate generally are going for the appearance and many times trying to do some kind of ebony replacement because of the extreme dark color that it gets when finished. But I'm with you. I say we don't need it. <laughs> it's, it's not a species worth keeping around. In fact, I have a five-quarter piece of Wingate that it's been in my lumber shed for about 15 years. Have not found a use for it. Probably never will find a use for it. But it's a striking wood. And especially a lot of new woodworkers who first start gaining exposure to the the world of wood and all the different colors. You know, you go to that woodcraft or rockler and you see those small boards of yellow heart and purple heart. And you're thinking, man, that's crazy. And then you see that wingay and you go, oh, my God, it just screams exotic wood. So if you want to make that exotic statement, wingay is one that immediately comes to mind with a lot of people. So those of you listening, 
If you've worked with Wingay and you really like it, tell us why. Why do you work with it? Has it been worth all the heartache and all the splinters and all the possible, you know, <laughs> infections and problems that can come from it? As far as why it would be seized as a, as a cutting board for um, uh, harmful nature, I don't know whether the extractives in it would be that much of a problem. Um, especially once it's kiln dried, you shouldn't have too many issues there, but you never can be too safe when it comes to, you know, food safe. Uh, the other things, because Winge has that open poured nature, you just don't like using open poured material in cutting boards. I don't care if it's red oak or it's Winge, those open pores are place, places for bacteria to hide. So I would be willing to bet that a health inspector is grabbing it more for that open poured nature than the fact that it's Winge. Um, but as I just said, Winge screams exotic, which there is this kind of stigma, if you will, that exotics are filled with nasty oils and poisonous things. So it certainly will catch the eye of a health inspector. On closer examination, you'll see those wide open pores and think, ooh, yummy, little raw chicken bits, <laughs> you know, sitting in those, in their various, uh, various species of E. coli, strains of E. coli. Is it a species? It's not a species of bacteria, is it? We're just going to go with strain. Yeah, biologists can write in and tell me. Um, I don't know. But yeah, that's the bigger thing. You know, the same reason you don't make a cutting board out of red oak, it's the same reason you wouldn't do it out of wingays. For the, all the nooks and crannies that while me good, may be good in your English muffin, not so good in your cutting board. Uh, here's my last question. No, no, sorry. My second to last question. This is from David on... Uh, rift and quartered material. He says, most of the pictures of cuts in logs, one sees that uh, equate rift, sawn, um, let me back up. Anytime you, you, if you Google like rift and quartered or quarter sawn or rift sawn, you generally will find an image uh, on Google that's the cross section of a log and it shows how that board was sawn in order to get quartered boards and, and how to get rift boards. So that's what David's talking about here. When you see pictures of that cross section of log and how you cut it. So is anytime you see those pictures, the you see rift boards are boards that are cut radially from a log and quarter sawn boards cut from a quarter parallel to the radial axis. So again, think radially, think spokes on a wheel. And if the boards lined up were parallel with those spokes, that's generally how a rift sawn board is sawn. Generally, before people start jumping down my throat, generally, that's how they're, they're sawn, radially. Quarter sawn, literally, you take that log, you cut it into quarters, and you cut off that inside face. Then you rotate the board a quarter, and you cut along the next inside face. Then you rotate the board another quarter and you cut along that inside face. And that's how you get those quarter sawn boards. Ultimately, the difference between a quarter sawn board and a rift sawn board is degrees of growth rings on the end. So a rift sawn board, if the growth rings on the end of the board run anywhere from 30 to 60 degrees, it's considered a rift sawn board. If they're 60 to like a hundred maybe that could be a quarter sawn board. Those regulations have tightened up a little bit. I can't even really call them regulations. That classification has tightened up quite a bit lately, um, especially because there are certain species like white oak that will display quarter sawn ray fleck quite readily. Um, and it, it's almost like flipping a switch when you go from like 76 to 75 degrees, suddenly the ray fleck is gone. Um, 
while other species like red oak may not show the reflect quite as readily. Uh, other wide, wide open pored like quarter or excuse me, um, ash, things like that, hickory uh, will show very little reflect and you can push the, the rifts on look, you know, into the 80s. Uh, 80 degrees uh, growth rings to the end. So a lot of that will vary dependent upon the species and you might find specific classifications per species for the best ray fleck or for the best quarter sawn. And because things like red oak and white oak do show ray fleck pretty readily, oftentimes you've got to go towards the lower end of the spectrum on rifts on to get a straight grain board without any ray fleck. You've got to get either spot on 45 degrees or closer to 30 or you'll see little bits of reflex start to creep into the board. And in the flooring industry, that can be a big deal. Um, actually, the commercial millwork industry as well, rift, white oak, and red oak have become incredibly popular to the point where the prices are actually more expensive for, for rift than they are quartered now because it does require a very, very small window to get that red and white oak board to not present reflex. So, what David has to say here, apologize, David, for interrupting. I just wanted to give a little definition there. What David is saying is, I don't understand how the resulting faces, let me just read what he said here. So if the, the, the rifts on boards are cut radially and the quarter on boards are cut from that quarter, the resulting faces of the boards wouldn't be called quarter sawn for anything um, with growth rings, wouldn't be called quarter sawn for anything with growth rings perpendicular to the face. At least the middle ones, both quarter and rift, are likely to do that as the flat sawn center ones for that matter. But rift sawn, if the growth rings in the board are running approximately diagonal, 30 to 60 degrees through the board, it seems that in practical use of terms, rift sawn logs yield solely quarter sawn boards. It does seem confusing and I would appreciate anything you could do to shed light on this. If you are completely lost by this, Go Google quarter sawn, or how do you make quarter sawn? How do you make rift sawn? Look at those images I'm talking about. If you look at a board that is radially sawn and you look at the growth rings on those boards, it looks like the growth rings intersect those boards at 90 degrees. So if a rift sawn board is cut from a radial sawn log, wouldn't those rift sawn boards therefore be quarter sawn? Because now your growth rings are intersecting at almost dead on 90 degrees. Here's where this comes in, where I say the radial thing, put a pin in that. <clears throat> because most of the mills, no, let me correct that. All of the mills that I talk to, now obviously I don't talk to every mill. So you can say most of the mills out there do this. All the mills that I talk to, all the mills that we do business with, all the mills that my domestic buyer who's been in this business almost longer than I've been alive <laughs> talk to, they don't radial saw anymore. Radially sawing is incredibly wasteful, um, very, very low yield, and incredibly time consuming. It's not easily done. Um, just look at, at, a, at a, one of those diagrams of a radial sawn board and look at all the dead space around the little diagram, the little square boards, and just imagine trying to do that, rotating a log after every cut. Um, and the carriage that you've got to use to do that, how much material you're losing in the process, radial sawn is a very inefficient way to do this. So rift sawn boards now don't get sawn that way. They tend to get sawn closer to a quarter sawn method or they're sawn flat sawn and then straight line ripped. 
So if you flat saw a wide board, you're going to have a center cathedral pattern right at the middle along like where the pith would be the center of, of the bowl. Flanking that will be quartered and rift material. So it's a lot easier to flat saw like into a slab, like a two live edge slab through sawn or plain sawn, if you will, and then straight line rip out your rift material from that. You can also quarter saw a log and at a, you know, but at a slight angle to create a rift sawn board. That is much less wasteful. It's still a hell of a lot more wasteful than, than plain sawing or flat sawing or through sawing, whatever term you want to use, but it will produce a little bit more control over the rift sawn look. So what's happened is it's just kind of fallen out of fashion. Radial sawing, I should say, it's just kind of fallen out of fashion. And the term radial sawing or rift sawing used to be synonymous. They're not really anymore. Um, and back when radial sawing was more in vogue, that was still known as a rift sawn board, but more often than not, it wasn't in species like red oak and white oak that when the grain intersects the face at 90 degrees, you see big old hairy ray fleck. Most of the species, you don't see that ray fleck. The medullary rays are a heck of a lot smaller. So what presents in a true quarter sawn board with 90 degrees to the face, what you see is a straight grain board. The issue, however, with 90 degrees to the face means that you don't get straight grain on all faces. A quarter sawn board is going to show straight grain on the faces and flat sawn grain on the edges, whereas a true rift sawn board will show straight grain on both the faces and the edges. So when you S4S that board into, say, a chair leg or a table leg, you're going to have lovely straight grain on all four faces. Quarter sawn, it doesn't do that. So as rift sawn started to be uh, sought after for true three-dimensional, like on all four sides, straight grain, that technically wasn't riffs on material in the, in the sense that was cut from a radio log. But really where these terms started to come from was the flooring industry. That's where it was being used. That's where people, well, certainly quartered material was obviously used a lot in the furniture industry, but under large panels and things is when we wanted that straight grain face or that quarter sawn face. And the flooring industry is a one face industry. It's all we see. Once you assemble the floor, you don't see edges anymore. You don't see the underface. You just see the top face. And getting that straight grain look on a floor um, and that one quarter sawn red oak board with that ray fleck on it sticks out like a sore thumb. Or vice versa, that one perfectly straight grain riff sawn board in and amongst the ray fleck floor sticks out like a sore thumb. So the flooring industry wasn't concerned about... Um, you know, what was showing up on the edges. So what they were concerned about was that one good face and that one good face meeting whatever character that is, whether it's rift, whether it's quartered. Um, and you will see flooring grades or flooring products where it can be rift flooring or it can be quartered flooring, or it can be rift and quartered flooring where it's a mix of both. And that tends to be the material that's in between, like your quarter boards, your perfect 90 degree intersection boards that goes into the quarter flooring pile. The perfect 45 degree intersection boards goes into the rift pile. The boards in the 30 to 40 and 50 to 60 and 70 to 80, those go into the rift and quartered pile and they get sold at a, at a, you know, a mixed bundle, slightly cheaper price. Whereas the pure rift boards are sold at a premium price, the most premium price these days. And the pure quartered boards are sold at a slightly less premium, but still premium price. So David, the real answer to your question is radially sawing isn't really done much anymore. And when it was done, it was a different market. 
that wasn't actually looking for what today we think of when we think of riff sawn and quarter sawn. And more importantly, it wasn't just done for red oak and, and white oak. Really, the only species today that you tend to find sold and rift and quartered cuts, it's very rare to go to a lumber yard and see quarter sawn cherry. There may be some quarter sawn cherry in the pack of four quarter cherry, but it's not specifically labeled as quartered cherry or quartered maple or quartered walnut or rift maple, rift walnut. That's stuff that happens in our own workshops downstream. We're not getting it from the lumber yard itself. So hopefully that it confused the issue even more, David. I apologize if it did, but yeah, it's one of those artifacts of an older industry. Okay, finally, moving on to my last question here. This is from Eli, and frankly, he's surprised at how fast his lumber is drying, which is gonna kind of spark, if there is a main segment to this episode, that's what it's gonna be. So Eli writes in and says, um, I'm a 22-year-old woodworker from Illinois. Nice to have some youths in, in the, uh, the woodworking world. He says, I'm enjoying listening to your podcast for the last year. Learned a lot from your show and improved my woodworking knowledge. That's all I can ask for. Thank you, Eli. I appreciate that. So two years ago, Eli says, I was lucky enough to become the new owner of three large cherry logs that were left behind when two cherry trees were cut down from the back of a Christmas tree farm that I work at during the Christmas season. Stupid cherry trees getting in the way of the Christmas trees. I was still in college at the time, and I wasn't able to take them to get milled until this past August. The guy that milled them for me finished milling them about mid-October. I uh, stacked and stickered them right away, covered them with a tarp, leaving two ends open to ensure air movement, and left them to dry. I got a moisture meter for Christmas and proceeded to test the lumber. After testing multiple boards, I was shocked to find out that the average percentage was 16%. I was expecting at least double that amount. I compared that against another moisture meter and got roughly the same numbers. From listening to your show and doing reading on my own, I was prepared to have to wait at least a year per inch for the wood to dry. How dare you, Eli? I have never said that on this show. <laughs> so I'm confused why the milled lumber is that low after only sitting for about two and a half months. Is there something I'm missing? Is it possible for the wood to shed moisture that fast? Is it possible that the logs shed moisture while sitting for a year in log form? From everything I've read and listened to, logs don't shed moisture, at least not a lot. The homeowner did take the tree down because large branches were falling out of the tree and he was afraid it was dying. If that's the case, would a dying tree have less moisture to start with? If it is any consolation, I also did not paint the ends of the logs as I wasn't aware of that process at the time. For one of your episodes I listened to, I looked up a table with the average equilibrium moisture content or EMC for my location. It listed the EMC for December to be about 15.7%, the same value I got for some of my boards. If those numbers are correct then, based on my understanding, the wood isn't going to dry any further without putting it in a kiln or bringing it inside the house. All this to say I'm confused. I was expecting to be 30-40%, not that I wanted to be that high as I'd like to be able to work the wood as soon as possible, but I feel like I'm missing something. He then uh, attached some pictures. I must say, absolutely beautiful lumber. You are a lucky man. So um, yeah, he's got 300, wow, 354 board feet of uh, dimensional lumber in cherry. Good stuff. So Eli, this is a very common misconception. Rules of thumb are just that. They are rules of thumb. And the whole idea of wait a year per inch for your lumber to be dry, I think is a massive myth. 
Um, I've talked about this in Wood Talk before, and uh, Matt Cremona always laughs because people are like, I can't believe you're using that wood already. You know, when are you going to use that in 2064? And he's just like, most of this stuff is dry and ready to work within three months. And that is very true. Um, a tree will drop moisture very quickly. So let's kind of break down his question here. He's right that logs don't drop moisture very fast. Certainly they do drop moisture, but not very fast at all, especially when the bark is on. The bark is kind of insulating and keeping the moisture in. We've talked about that on a previous episode. Second thing, a dead tree, not dormant, we've already hit that, a truly dead tree will have lower moisture because the tree is dead. There's no more moisture being absorbed up the tree, being pulled up for nutrients up the tree anymore. It is dead and it is gravity draining at that point. Certainly not nearly as much as a board sitting in your garage floor or something like that, but it's going to have a lower moisture content. So that could be a possibility. But honestly, even if we're a perfectly healthy tree, 85, 90% moisture when the tree was felled, sat around for a couple of years in log form, and then sawn into boards, you probably would still see a similar moisture content after about three months. Now, again, this is going to vary from species to species. It's going to vary from climate to climate. Uh, he's in Illinois, which is quite moist. As you could tell, his EMC was 15.7%. My EMC is uh, 12 something. I, I, Eli, I never get that exact where you get into tenths of a percent. <laughs> 16% <laughs> roundup. That's good enough. Um, this is 12% is about where I am. That's in my shop. Um, that's going to vary. It's going to go down a little bit uh, in, the, in the winter and certainly up, but more than likely, it's probably 15 or 16% in the summer like, like you are. So you're not in a particularly dry desert climate. This is just kind of what happens when the board is sawn, it is actively dumping moisture. Here's the next thing. His boards are, oh, he showed me somewhere. I want to say they're like three to four feet long. So they're quite short. Even if they're like six feet long, there is less, there, there's, there's less material in between the ingrain to drain moisture from, for the air to flow through and for evaporation to cause the, the, the wood to drop. Once you've sawn the board, it's dumping moisture super fast. Once you cut it into shorter length, it's dumping moisture super fast. Add to the fact the fact that he did not seal the ends, which is slowing, retarding that moisture drop on the end, it's going to drop even faster. So you might get a little bit more checking on the ends, Eli, because you didn't seal them. But what you may also have is the boards dried even a little bit faster. But even if you sealed the boards, I think you would be surprised that your boards are still going to be at worst, maybe 20%, definitely not 30%. When you gravity drain a board, gravity dry a board, you will find that it's generally around 25% when it's done. So Boards will drop from, you know, that 85 when it was first felt. Again, I'm, I'm pulling that 85 number out of the air. That may go up depending on species, et cetera. So don't put that as gospel by any means. But let's just use it for, for you know, this conversation. It's at 85% when the tree was felled. It's probably hanging out in 80, 85 to 80% while it's in log form. You saw it into boards and it's still, let's just say it's still at 80 to 85%. When you gravity drain it, it's going to drop to like 25% in a day. Because the reason that moisture content is so high is the tree is full of wood. You know, pick up a truly wet board and pick up a board that is kiln dried and you will see a massive difference in weight. 
which is by the way, how we end up testing a lot of the dryness of a lot of our boards is we will, we will bake them to 0% weigh it and then weigh it against the board that has, you know, water in it. That's one of the, the, the more, uh, accurate ways to determine moisture content. But if that, if the kind of gravity drained or free water drained board is at 25%, you can imagine when the board, especially when you cut it into a shorter length, as the bound water starts to evaporate, you're already starting at 20 to 25%. So there's no way you would expect a board to be at 30 to 35%. Again, this will vary depending on species. I'm, I'm already hearing the, the keyboard keys clicking and clacking. People are like, my board's at 38%. <laughs> the keyboard warriors are up in arms. I challenge you, though, to saw board, go through gravity draining, or don't gravity drain it. Just stick it on, you know, stick and stacker it like Eli did. Come back in three months. I guarantee you, you're going to find a board that's closer to 20%, if not below 20%, like Eli saw, definitely not 30%. The moisture drops really, really fast. So here's the next thing. When can you start working the wood? Because here's the other question I get a lot. And this is where we're branching kind of away from Eli's question. Eli, the easy answer to your question is no. Nothing went wrong. That's perfectly natural. Don't worry about it. The next thing is I'm constantly hearing people are saying, you know, okay, well, I've got this lumber. I'm going to let it sit for six months to acclimate, you know, or I cut the tree and... You know, it's at 20%, so I need to wait, you know, another three months before I can work it. Green woodworking is obviously a thing. You know, chair makers use wet wood all the time. Turners use wet wood all the time. Obviously, it's going to vary from case to case. But if you understand how you're using that board, what kind of joinery you're using that board, where it's going to be, how uh, seasonal expansion and contraction will affect that particular board or boards assembled into something then you can combat moisture. If you know that you're, uh, say you're building a table and that your table is going to be um, fastened to a really, really stout base or you're gonna put like sliding dovetail battens in it or <gasps> C-channel <laughs> in the bottom of it that's going to hold that kind of rigid, not keep it from moving, but keep it from restrain it from bowing. If you know you're going to do that, but you're building in the ability to allow for expansion and contraction, you can work that board quite wet. You can work that board at 20%. Now, the issue you may see is some checking on the ends where it's going to dump moisture a little bit faster and expansion and contraction is going to be a little bit harder to control. But the workbench is a, is a lovely example. You know, if you're building like a Nicholson or a Rubo bench, you can let the top expand and contract all you want. It's not going to affect anything. It may slightly take the legs out of 90 degrees to the floor. Um, as that top expands, those legs may will be a more acute angle. As that top shrinks, they'll be a more, is it oblique? I just totally forgot. Greater than 90 degrees, oblique, whatever. You get the idea. They'll be, you know, 92 degrees or 95 degrees to the floor. And as it expands, it'll be 89, 87 degrees to the floor. I, I throw out the challenge to anybody who spends a bunch of time getting your legs perfectly 90 degrees to the face. Why? When have you ever needed that? I can tell you I've never needed that for anything. Maybe my work is not precise enough. Maybe I'm not a good enough woodworker that I need a 90 degree front face on my bench. But very rarely do we care about that. And you can engineer your solution to allow for expansion and contraction. 
So working with a board that's 25% moisture content may see a lot more movement. That particular board will certainly move a lot more than one that is already at equilibrium moisture content. But if you can account for that, if you say, okay, this board may shrink two inches, but your joinery or whatever your design actually accounts for that movement, then there's no big deal working with it. In fact, you'll find that the, the wood is a little bit easier to work because of that higher moisture content. You may have to pay attention to checking and things like that, but also applying a finish to it is very much like sealing the ends of a log. It's gonna slow that down. Now, there are certainly gonna be circumstances where two inches of movement would be a major problem based on the joinery. But like a lot of tabletops that are secured via battens or secured with figure eight fasteners or something like that that allow for expansion and contraction, as long as you allow for that amount of expansion and contraction, that range, you can work with a board that's a heck of a lot wetter than the six to 8% that is kiln dried. So kiln drying, well, here's the other thing. Kiln dry does not mean the board is not gonna move, right? We know this, boards will continue to move if the kiln dry. If we kiln dry a board um, and you bring it home from the yard and your equilibrium moisture content is 12% in your shop, that 6% board is going to gain 6% of moisture until it comes into equilibrium. That's why it's called equilibrium moisture content. Likewise, if your board is at 18%, eventually it's going to drop down to 12%. What kiln drying does, what dropping the board below like 10, 8% moisture content does is the board is so dry that the cell walls now harden a little bit. And those slightly harder cell walls make the board itself a bit more rigid. It also makes the board more resistant to absorbing more moisture. It doesn't mean that it can't absorb more moisture. It just means that it does it a lot slower. So a passing thunderstorm and a spike in humidity is not going to phase that board. Now, three months of higher or, or lower humidity is going to affect it, which is why you still see seasonal movement in kiln-dried boards. Air-dried boards, on the other hand, have not undergone that cell wall hardening. The cell is still a little, cell wall is still a little spongy, and it will be more prone to movement through a passing, passing thunderstorm than a kiln-dried board. They will both still absorb moisture, just at slightly different rates. And the harder kiln-dried you know, uh, board can in some ways be viewed as more durable, because not only are the cell walls harder, but some of the extractives and things like that um, have set a little bit more. The sap has been set, it itself has been hardened. It's a more non-reactive board that's also going to be uh, less appetizing to bugs. Not unappetizing. There have been situations where bugs have still eaten kiln-dried wood, but it tastes like crap. So it's like, you know, do you want to have a plate full of Brussels sprouts or a plate full of French fries? Actually, these days, I really like Brussels sprouts, especially with like a wasabi. I had some the other day with this mustard sauce. It was really, really good, but I digress. Anyway, the biggest thing that I want to get across to people is the boards will dry pretty quickly. And more importantly, you don't have to let them sit around for six months. Having a moisture meter is a good idea. So Eli, you're ahead of most folks by having that moisture meter. Bringing those boards into your shop and establishing what your equilibrium moisture content is in your shop, just by paying attention to when do those boards stop dropping. 
You know, when do they drop in moisture content? And when do they kind of stabilize? That's your EMC. You can feel confident that you can start working those boards. Because frankly, the EMC is not going to be that much different from inside your house than it is inside your shop or something like that. Even if your shop is completely uninsulated, your EMC is still going to be very similar for your region rather than your, your house. The big difference, obviously, the biggest stress on wood is in the winter months when we turn the heat up and the air gets very dry and the boards start to drop down, you know, that six to six percent and even lower moisture content. But you'll also find that if your EMC is 16 and it's dropped to eight, that may sound like a lot. But once you start getting that low in moisture content, you'll also discover that the movement starts to slow down quite a bit because there's just not that much moisture in the board and the dead air in the board. We talked about this earlier with Wingay, those big wide open pores or red oak with wide open pores. Even the small pores of, of hard maple, they can absorb some of that expansion and contraction, some of that additional moisture and movement that comes with that additional moisture. As the cell walls swell up with additional moisture, they've got room to move into, into those pores. As the cells, um, shrink as they lose moisture, those pores just expand open a little bit more. There's a, there's a lot more flexibility in the wood than most people think, which is why I say don't ignore wood moisture and wood movement. Just don't be afraid of it. It's not nearly as militant as people think it is. So the, 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 the rule of thumb of one inch per year, it's a rule of thumb. Get yourself a moisture meter and go with reality because you'll probably find that it dries a heck of a lot faster than one inch per year. It's probably uh, you know, one year per one inch, I guess is a better way to put that. It's probably a lot more like three months per one inch, maybe even, maybe even shorter, depending upon the species, the density, and the climate that you're drying that wood in. So I hope that helps. I hope that gets some of you with sitting on that stack of boards that's been in your shop for three months and you're still waiting for it to acclimate. Just get to work. Go buy some lumber and work on it. See ya, everybody.